Welcome to Tales from the Wavestone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 20, Mind Your Mind, where we will be looking at chapter 43 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of epistemic responsibility. Fair warning, this is my least favorite chapter of the entire book. Entire two books. Entire series. Entire thing. That includes all of the other little ancillary thingies. I hate this. I can see why. So as a reminder, each week we will be examining a section of The Name of the Wind through a chosen lens, and we will figure out what we can take from the text and apply it to our real lives. We'll also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phronemos of the week. Afterward, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact and wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. As always, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second of all, our discussions are naturally going to assume at least a degree of familiarity with the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other ancillary novellas and short stories in the continuity. Or you're just okay knowing the future like some sort of weird backwards aging wizard. Needless to say, ahead there be spoilers. And finally, as a word to our community, while it's perfectly acceptable to critique the text, we're not going to stand for any abuse of the author. We're all trying to be kind out here. So now it is time for us to do our 45 second recap for this section. I am so very, 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 very happy that I am not doing this. I'm taking one for the team. Let me go ahead and pull up a timer. Are you ready? Yep. In three, two, one, go. While numb to his pain, Kvothe goes to the stacks for entry to gain, though access he lacks. He encounters that creep Ambrose composing poetry that's crass and way too on the nose while he treats fellow like trash. Kvothe gives Ambrose some criticism of his god's awful writing, mixed with some witticism and sarcasm biting. Ambrose tricks Kvothe into entering the stacks with a lit candle, because since he does lack, or the means to handle. Lauren punishes Kvothe for his foolishness and demotes Ambrose for his ghoulishness, sealing their status as foes. 27 seconds. Good job. That was tricky. You went real fast. I'm surprised you didn't trip over your tongue too much. Yeah, that one was hard. I'm not going to lie. I had to work on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. Thanks. Now it is time to get into the discussion. Fair warning. I might drop out and internally go la 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 during it because I am not kidding. Every single time. Since the first time I listened to The Name of the Wind on audiobook, every time I have skipped this. Until now, remembering that there is some interesting talk about the four-plate door that in the last three or four times I've listened to the book, I've not noticed because I cannot stand this chapter. 
Yeah, there's definitely some mystery box foreshadowing that we're going to get into here. So we chose as our lens epistemic responsibility. And this is a principle that is about making sure that the beliefs that you espouse and act upon are properly justified. Whether this is what you post on social media or what you use to guide your life otherwise. Is it also about consistency? Consistency is part of it, but it's also about making sure that you're not just giving into your biases. Ah. Because the hardest things to weed out are the things that feel true, even when they aren't. So for instance, in this case, the thing that Quoth desperately wants to be true is that he has full access to the archives, even though it's been less than a day since he was actually formally admitted, and he's only just fresh off of a bit of corporal punishment. As we will see, that in itself becomes a bit of an excuse for Quoth's actions. He definitely uses it, and it's a belief that he wants to be true so badly that he can't possibly just wait the extra day. Every error that he commits here is completely unforced. Accurate. There's so much to hate about this chapter. From the kind of performative feminism, to the sheer stupidity, to the fact that someone who prides himself so much on being smart was such a dumbass. Yeah, I mean... Again, all of those errors are unforced. This is something that he was in no way pushed to do by anything other than his own impatience. He runs into that particular problem a lot. His own impatience. Self-made problems are oftentimes unsatisfying. Self-made problems are also hard to not repeat. So when our action starts, we see Quoth enter the archives, and at the front desk, Fella and Ambrose are sitting there, and Ambrose is sexually harassing her. And that's the charitable explanation. The thing that really gets me is the attention to the fact that Ambrose's hand is on the back of Fella's neck. I have felt trapped by someone acting possessive of me in that kind of manner, it is incredibly hard to extricate yourself from a situation when you are being physically touched. Yeah, it's completely inappropriate behavior. It is the sort of thing that has no place in a contemporary society. And I think the thing that annoys me most is that we don't really get to see this as anything other than something to set Ambrose up as a heel to be hated, rather than actually seeing any lasting repercussions for, for instance, Fella, or how she deals with it. I would say that we do actually get a little bit of follow-through or follow-up on how Fella feels towards this, because... When she helps Quoth break into Ambrose's room later, so that Quoth can ostensibly get Denna's ring back, she's doing it as kind of a payback and using Ambrose's 
assumption that he can own every woman in his presence against him. There's some of that, but it'll take a full book's length before we even get to that heist. And I think especially in Name of the Wind, one of the weaknesses is that many of the female characters, Fella in particular, don't really get to exercise a whole lot of agency. I agree with you. I also don't really like that sexism and the way that a male character treats a woman in the book is used as shorthand for this guy is an asshole. I agree. Even without his obvious sexism, we already have plenty of evidence to know that Ambrose is bad news. It ends up being kind of tropey and it just turns women into victims as opposed to survivors with agency. I also found that I had a problem with Quoth's defense of Fella. He makes this distinction between Fella as a student compared to a sex worker, as if a sex worker would not have the same inherent dignity associated with him as a person. It's the kind of thing that seems on its surface at first glance to be a perfectly fine thing, but it's at its heart rooted in a very toxic judgment of how worth is defined, especially as it relates to sexuality. Also, just knock it off with the white knighting. In this particular instance, the white knighting is not even about Fella. It's about Quoth. Because everything's about Quoth. Agreed. It's Quoth getting his own ego involved in all of this. He's so concerned with seeing himself as the hero from a story that he never actually considers Fella as a person beyond a, quote, damsel to be rescued. And so while his actions ultimately are beneficial to Fella and that they allow her to escape, Quoth's own attitudes end up reinforcing the patriarchal male domination. As though Fella needs Quoth to rescue her. Just wanted to call that out there. I'm glad we both hit on the same sort of thing. We were like, oh. Ugh. Ugh. In this way, Quoth actually reminds me a little bit of one of our friends who got performatively angry over overt sexism. There was a book that he had stopped reading. And mind you, this guy loves books. He loves fantasy books. He loves narrative. Absolutely. And it was a book that both of us had read and I had continued reading on in the series when I was a teenager. He stopped in the middle of the first book because the author had made a sect of women who were essentially dominatrixes. And the way that the author wrote about them turned him off so much that he did what he never does. And he put the book down. And anytime anyone ever brought that book up, he would just go off in a way that made it very clear that while, yes, he did not appreciate the way that the author was treating his female characters, he also needed to make sure that no one thought that he would ever 
think of a woman this way. And I know exactly which books you're talking about. Uh-huh. You read them, didn't you? Or one of them? Uh, part I of one even, of them? Yeah, I read part of them, and I also similarly was turned off for a number of reasons. Right. I mean, the fact of the matter is I read them when I was a teenager and thought that they were hot. Sure. But looking back at them, they're terrible. Parents, don't let your kids grow up to be objectivists. That's all we're going to say. <laughs> you didn't even get to the one that was all about communism. Anyway, <laughs> if you know what the series is, cool. If you don't, I'm not telling. I'm not proud of the fact that I read them. <laughs> Let's go on with the thing that makes me intensely uncomfortable. As part of the white knighting, Quoth continues his um, very clear disdain for poetry. And he even does so in a way that is all about showing how smart he is. Like, there's definitely a sense where it's not enough for him to just distract Ambrose from Fella. He has to demonstrate superiority. It's really smug. It's not a good look on anyone. It really isn't. So Fella escapes, and then Ambrose tells Quoth that he will let him into the archive, even though he's not supposed to yet, but there's a stacks fee of one talent. At this point, you have to wonder, Quoth is someone who has expressed open distrust and disdain of everyone who has actually had his interests at heart, and yet he believes this guy, who's obviously a creep. On top of that, he then goes on to completely just blame the Null Root. Right. The Null Root, while it did dull his senses, he knew about the side effects. This is someone who has cataloged all of these things. He should have known that, hey, there's going to be a kick-in after this. I'm going to be exhausted and hurting when it wears off. I can wait a day. Except he can't. He really, really can't. And then he just doesn't get anything he wants. And it's less that he can't, it's that he won't. Oh, he thinks he can't. This is what gets him into trouble. It's, again, that epistemic belief, even as he knows, he knows that he is not going to instantly be in the books. He's already had this experience. This is the second time, third time, something. Second time. Second time that he has been told explicitly no by Ambrose. Why would you tussle with this jerk? This could all have waited. Meanwhile, again, he knows that realistically, how could his name be in the books yet? And the effects of the null root hadn't started wearing off until halfway through this exchange. So he could have chosen not to do any of this. Part of this is because his beliefs in this point were determined not by what his evidence would tell him or what would make sense, but rather based on what he wants to be true. He wants it to be true that he's in the books. He wants it to be true that he can take a shortcut to get in. He wants it to be true that anything he does is justified because this is something that he, quote, needs. And this is a tough thing for a lot of people to learn. Things that we want to be true often are not. I mean, right now, I want it to be true that I can leave my house. And yet. And yet. And yet it is not. And it's also true that when you have swarms of misinformation flowing online, the things you should be wary of are not the ones that are obviously false, but those things that seem 
plausible within your own worldview. Those things that would just confirm everything. Because we're much more prone to accepting things that we want to be true as true. We don't give them the same degree of skepticism. We don't give them the same vetting that we do those things that we want to be false. And oftentimes those things we want to be false, maybe we vet too stringently. We discount too easily. It's amazing what bias will do. Everyone is subject to this. I'm not saying I'm perfect in this regard. I'm definitely subject to it. You know, we've all seen memes passed around that seem reasonable, they seem true, but they're actually not. Keep that in mind, especially when it comes to political discourse. Anyway, enough of my soapbox there. Anyway, so I have to say in reading this, because I am so hyper aware of what is going to happen every time there is a mention of the warm red glow of the sympathy lamps, I just want to rip my hand into the book, grab both and shake him. <laughs> he is such an idiot in this chapter. Yeah, for someone who has such a strong grasp of physical principles, you would think he would understand why carrying an open flame into a library would be a really bad idea. For someone who prides himself so much on just noticing things, on being aware of his surroundings, of noticing that someone doesn't have their rings on because they have little white lines on their hand. Details, dude! And this is just first principles bullshit. And again, he's just so desperate that he lets down his guard when he absolutely shouldn't. Like this is someone he has already established as untrustworthy and is already manipulative and kind of a creep. And already has it out for him. Right. And yet this is the person whose word that he takes for granted when he has suspicion and disdain towards people like Willem. He can't even trust Willem with the truth about what he's doing. And he instantly trusts what Ambrose says to get into the archives. He also doesn't trust Lauren or Arwill or Herma. Why in the ever-loving fork does he... I... Exactly. Anyway. Yeah. It's just bad business all around. And again, a completely unforced error. After getting completely swindled and then given his smoking candle, so to speak, <laughs> Quoth goes and explores the archives for a bit. First, he uses sympathy. Again, with the sympathy. Sorry. <laughs> to light his own damn candle. What an idiot. So then Quoth goes and explores the archives for a bit. And here we get some potentially foreshadowing things. Once again, we hear comparisons to Greystones with the archives. And then we get the four-plate door. And it is just a great big mystery box at this point. It's setting up something that everyone who reads these books wants to know. And frankly, has wanted to know since they first came out and I think it's one of the reasons why so many of us are so invested because there's a good mystery here 
There is a lampshade put on the four plate door, but it's not overly pointed at. Yeah. I mean, it could be something really important to the plot, or it could just be an old card catalog that nobody uses. <laughs> I doubt it's a card catalog, but I like the way that you think, sir. <laughs> we can tell that Quoth really does want to know, because part of his vicious curiosity, and it is vicious, is he wants to know everything he possibly can, and not only that, he thinks that he is entitled to know. And so when I say vicious, I don't mean that in the sense that he is malicious or cruel or anything like that in this regard. I mean this in the form that this curiosity is a vice. It is an improper pursuit of knowledge that he's not entitled to. So for instance, curiosity is wanting to know how a thing works, just so that you can better understand a mechanism. Vicious curiosity would be wanting to know what your neighbor is doing in the privacy of their own home. Just because you care about knowledge doesn't mean that you are entitled to spy on your neighbor. He assumes that because it's locked, he has an entitlement to know, which, frankly, isn't really a valid excuse. And so this is more of that epistemic responsibility we were talking about there. It's knowing when it's something that you need to know. And Quoth has no such guardrails, as we'll see throughout the books. All right, well, before we leave this area that makes me so intensely uncomfortable that I really don't want to talk about it, the four-plate door itself is intriguing, and we would be remiss if we didn't talk about it at all. It definitely has the makings of an RPG dungeon puzzle. Four keys that you have to search down and things like that. It seems like it would be. But we don't get any resolution to this. It had no hinges, no handle, no window or sliding panel. The four copper plates are set flush with the face of the door, which is flush with the front of the frame, which is flush with the wall surrounding it. You could run your hand across from one side of the door to the next and hardly feel the lines of it at all. Who's to say that this is a door and not just some sort of weird art piece? And who's to say that it's the door itself? It could just be the lock mechanism for some door hidden somewhere else. Each copper plate has a hole in its center, but they're not shaped like a conventional keyhole. It's an expanse of gray stone, much like the archives. The door sat still, like a mountain, quiet and indifferent as the sea on a windless day. And it's not a door for opening. There is a word chiseled deep into the stone. Valeritas. It sounds a little bit like Latin for truth. Veritas. But it also has valor. Quoth wanted to get inside so badly he could taste it. And despite how much he had been looking forward to getting into the archives, he is now fixated on a door. We are left with a mystery that gets touched on here and there once Quoth is able to enter the archives through Ari's underthing. That sounds so wrong. But it makes me wonder, are there ways to map out the space that is taken up by whatever's inside? Where is the room that this goes into? Or the space that this goes into? Is it a TARDIS? Is it bigger on the inside? 
Well, these are all puzzles that Quoth might have been able to figure out answers to had he just waited until he was on the books and got himself an actual sympathy lamp. He even says while he's in the archives that he couldn't possibly spend any time reading because his brain was basically mush. What an idiot. What an idiot. What an idiot. Anyway. So, do you think that the four-plate door is the Doors of Stone? I don't think it is, but I think it's patterned after those. Hmm. It is analogous to them. I think it has a relationship to them, but it is not them literally. Gotcha. At least that is my understanding of it. I wonder if anyone ever gets so curious that they cease to be able to function otherwise. Well, clearly Kvothe does. Well, in a manner of speaking, yeah. I guess there's just so much to look at at the university, so much to focus on at the university, that one mystery isn't necessarily going to take precedence over another. And I think that's what happens in the books, too. We kind of forget about some of the breadcrumbs. So, dear listeners, we would love to hear any theories you have about the four-plate door. Or any of the other things that we've talked about. Go ahead and hit us up on Twitter at WaystonePod, or on Instagram at WaystonePod, or if you really feel like it, I do check it, our Facebook page, which is quite lonely, which is Tales from the Waystone. Moving on, he's caught with the open flame. Again, I do not like this chapter. And he is swiftly brought before Lauren. I mean, I saw this coming from a mile away the second that the stupid forking candle was brought out. I just was like, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh don't, 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 don't. <laughs> and I mean, meanwhile, we've also had plenty of foreshadowing about how Lauren gets when people are irresponsible around his books. That didn't take very long now, did it? Yeah, it's something that's only ever been brought up about him as soon as anybody mentions him for the first time. Oh, have you met Lauren? He seems like a really mild-mannered guy until you mess with his books. Everyone has said that. And sure enough. <laughs> Quoth threatens to burn down the archives because he's an idiot. And frankly, I think he got off light. I know. He should have been kicked from the university. Like, legit, should have been kicked out of the university. They just whipped him for talking back to a teacher. I mean, lighting a teacher's foot on fire. Whatever. Here's the thing. Regardless of how smart Quoth may be. Which I am beginning to doubt. He's intelligent, but he's also really dumb. This is where you get a difference between the wisdom score and the int score in D&D. Intelligence is knowing how to start a fire. Wisdom is knowing when not to. The mere fact that Quoth can't make that distinction indicates why he has no business being in the archives. <sighs> When Lauren then proceeds to chew both Ambrose and Quoth out, the first thing Ambrose does is, of course, concoct a lie about how Quoth tricked him or snuck in or what have you, and Lauren is having none of it. As far as Lauren is concerned, Ambrose's job as the scriv at the front desk is to make sure that only people who are supposed to go in are going in, which means either A, he let the person in deliberately, which is a huge problem, or B, he was negligent in his duties. Either way, Ambrose has no business being at the front desk. Absolutely true, and here's hoping that he gets taken off of that duty. 
Meanwhile, Quoth, regardless of whether he was tricked or not, or whether he had drugged himself or not, again, unforced errors, regardless of that, he was responsible for taking a candle in there because he ultimately chose to. He lit the damn thing himself. He walked around in a room full of the smell of clean leather and paper. So much paper. So much kindling. So many things that are irreplaceable. It makes me wonder if this instance is almost going to be a foreshadowing of something that ultimately will happen to the archives. Because that, I think, would gut so many people. And I both hope and hope that it does not happen. Honestly, I hope Quoth gets some comeuppance because he really does deserve it. He's on the verge of putting himself into a Library of Alexandria situation. And the best he can think of as an excuse is, but, but he gave me the candle. But, but, but I didn't mean to. Doesn't matter. It's a dumb decision. He didn't have to accept the candle. He didn't have to be a complete and utter dumbass. And he didn't have to go to the archives today. Especially when he knows that, hey, he has friends who are scribs, who he could ask about this. Right. But he couldn't wait. Nope. Less patience than our cats. So justifiably, Lauren bans Quoth from the archives. Um, and it's just then and there, and it's done. No time limit. Nothing. Just banned. That's one way to get him not to be able to look up anything on the Chandrian or the Amir. That said, who's to say that there is even anything in there? That said, who's to say that this wasn't a convenient excuse for Lauren to ban him from seeking this knowledge? So after getting run out of the archives, Quoth goes back to the dining hall at Muse, where he runs into Manette and Simon, who quickly let him know just how much of a fool he's been made into. Manette has been a scriv. He recognizes the, oh, you have to pay a stack fee. But apparently, Ambrose is even more of a jerk than Quoth had already believed. Because the jerkish behavior that appalls Simon is the idea of a scriv charging like a halfpenny for a stack fee. Not a talent. Then there's also how Quoth talks about why he was banned. He says, some scrivs found me with a candle in the stacks. He doesn't say, I carried a candle into the stacks. It's, I was caught. Right. He doesn't take any ownership or responsibility for it. It's the fault of those scrivs who caught him that he got banned. It was the fault of the scriv at the desk that he even had the candle. Quoth, who has this insatiable curiosity, does not ask questions. He doesn't ask the questions that matter. Never relevant ones. And he never asks the right people. The people who are in a position to actually give him an honest answer that will help him. The questions he asks are of people who will never give him a good faith answer. That's a pretty damning character flaw. So a couple little things about this exchange. Simon assumes that Quoth has been suspended from the archives, which doesn't seem like it's that big a deal because hold your horses, you'll get back in soon. 
Seriously. Dumbass. And Quoth has to reiterate, no, band. He tells them about the band before he tells what caused the ban. And when he states that the scriv at the desk gave him the candle, Sim is horrified and goes, no scriv would do that. Quoth is an unreliable narrator. Yeah, he does a lot of burying the lead here. He also notes that there are a lot of people casually listening to him and his conversation. So what the hell is he doing talking about all of this in public? And for someone who is as constantly aware of and who cares desperately about what other people think of him, this is kind of a grievous error on his part. And there's a point at which he has to put on a show about what he was saying so that people don't believe anything about what he was saying so that it doesn't get back to Ambrose. In the most unconvincing way possible, too. Like, he practically goes full Sam Jackson in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> like, that's just my favorite verse from the Bible. Vengeance is mine. <laughs> Smooth move. Before we get too far away... I do want to point out that Manette calls Lauren old lore, a connection that I did not make until I read the book instead of listening to it. Do you know the old lore? Precisely. Which is a case of names fitting their character. To a T. At this point, we get a little bit more information about Ambrose. He is obviously a rich nobleman or nobleman's son. He is an heir to a barony off of Ventus, a place that we will be visiting in the wise man's fear. His father is one of the 12 most powerful men in all of Ventus. And then Sim recites off names, some of which we will meet in book two. Mayor Alvaron, Malo and Lackless, and Manette glares to get him to shut up. I think at this point, Manette just wants to say, oh, we get it, he's powerful. <laughs> so Ambrose is definitely not someone that Quoth wants to tussle with, therefore Quoth is going to tussle with him. He then realizes everyone in the vicinity is actually listening to him. Nothing that he has said is going to go unnoticed. The boy just got whipped and let into the university proper. Like, no one's gonna notice him? The fork? And at the end of this chapter, Manette, who has been nothing but honest, even while recounting things that are less flattering about some of the other scribs and his time as a scrib, says, you're not gonna need to know this for a while, but you don't need to buy a hand lamp just to put that little cap on how Stupid Quoth is being. This is like if the Roadrunner fell for any of Wiley e. Coyote's dumb traps. <laughs> this is literally what that is. So with that, I think it is time for us to discuss our Fernemos of the Week. It is your turn. It is. And to continue on, I am choosing Manette because... He was kind and informative and blunt. He didn't hide his meaning behind flowery language or behind passive aggressiveness or 
behind the idea that he could imply things that his audience would then infer. Not speaking plainly is a great way for people not to understand you. He is almost always the voice of reason. One of the few that Quoth sometimes sort of listens to. Because while Manette is older than the other students, he's also still a student, so he's still their peer. And Quoth is more likely to listen to a peer. Yeah, he does manage to deliver some hard truths to Quoth that he needs to learn. And, you know, Manette is not above mischief here and there. No. Clearly he played the game a little bit back in the day, but... You can tell he also used it a little more judiciously. And while Quoth got taken for a talent, even if it was for a halfpenny, for someone in Quoth's situation where the finances were as tight and constrained, that would have been a lot. And you kind of get the sense that this might have been the sort of prank that they would play on the wealthier types of students. And Manette's not above a little bit of class warfare like that. No. But to have someone in Ambrose's position so grievously abuse a newcomer like Quoth is reprehensible, and Manette is the one to call it out for what it is. He knows the game because he's played it, and he also knows when not to play it. Yeah, I think you picked a good one. Thank you. I know you would have chosen Lauren, but it was my turn. Yep, and I think you picked well. Thank you. So now it is time for us to take to heart the lessons of Master Elodin to expand our understanding of the world with an interesting fact of the week. And this week, it is my turn. So, this one is called Shave the Whales. <laughs> okay. Have you ever wondered how whales navigate the oceans without obvious landmarks to bring them to their home waters? Scientists believe that whales use a form of magnetoreception, the ability to sense the Earth's magnetic field, as a way to chart their courses through the seas. Scientists discovered this when they found a correlation between the number of gray whale strandings and increased levels of atmospheric radio frequency noise. The more sunspots out there, the more likely there is to be a strong solar storm, which is a sudden release of high-energy particles that can disrupt magnetic orientation behavior when they interact with our planet's magnetosphere. At first, they hypothesized that it might be that the solar storms were pushing the magnetic field around and giving the whales incorrect information. But further investigation revealed that whales are more likely to beach during solar storms because their senses go blind. The scientists found that on days with a high sunspot count, the chance of stranding more than doubled, and on days with high RF noise in addition, the likelihood of stranding was more than four times as high as a randomly selected date. On days with magnetic distortion, but no higher than normal RF noise, they didn't see any change in the numbers. So it turns out that it isn't because of magnetic distortion from the solar storms, but rather the high levels of radio frequency noise associated with those storms, which they already knew could disrupt magnetic orientation. Now these storms also cause the aurora borealis to appear quite brightly, so, as a result, when the aurora is most active, gray whales are more likely to lose their bearings and find themselves stranded. Now tell me, was that interesting? It was. Now why did you name it what you named it? Because I wanted something that sounded like a pun and it had to do with whales. But it had nothing to do with your fact! But it had everything to do with whales, which had to do with my fact. I really do find that fact very interesting. I just... I'm left unfulfilled, damn it! <laughs> well, I'm glad you liked it. So now it's time for our seven words. I believe it is your turn for words from the book. I believe you are correct. So 
This section didn't have nearly as many seven word sentences that I would have normally picked as something to want to make a nice little graphic of. But I did find something that made me laugh. When Manette says, what'd you do? Piss on a book? <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't put it past Quoth at this point because he's an idiot. Frankly, it would have been better had that been his crime. Yeah, it would have only been one book that he was endangering. Exactly. I'm sure he'd still have gotten banned from the archives. And he would have still deserved it. But nonetheless, everyone, everyone knows that Lauren is protective of his books. Everyone says this. Everyone's told Quoth. Quoth is an idiot. Yep. Categorically. Your turn. <laughs> So mine is one that uh, I've been thinking about for a while, and it is, we're all trying to find our way. Hmm. So as we're recording this, our world has gone through a number of radical changes as we deal with a global outbreak. And everyone is having to figure out different ways to do a lot of the things that they used to be able to just do easily. So last night I was talking with some friends from college and we were talking about how a lot of things have changed and one of my friends was being rather hard on herself about how doing a performance over video conferencing last week had turned out poorly and she really felt bad about it. And I just had to remind her that no one anticipated anything like this. So everyone is having to develop new skills and new ways of doing things and that means that it's a learning process. And we're all trying to do our best here. We're all trying to find our path, all trying to find the best way to move forward. And we're going to run into scenarios where certain practices don't work. Maybe other practices work better. And all we can do is just learn from those and be graceful to ourselves. It's not the end of the world if something turns out worse than you expected. Something that you made or did doesn't turn out the way you'd hoped. No one thinks badly of you for it. And if they do, well, they're focusing on the wrong things. We just have to give ourselves the grace to admit mistakes and learn from them. That would be my recommendation for everyone. I think that you're right. I think it's important within any new situation to give yourself the grace to explore and to learn. But I think especially now in a time when everyone is going through something that no one has seen in our lifetimes. I think it's a time that we can let go of a lot of our expectations of one another and do our best and give ourselves the grace to know that we did our best and that we can learn from the situation if it wasn't up to our standards and do it better the next time. It's about all anybody can do. Those are my seven words. I like them. And with that, I would like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 44 and 45 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of currying favor. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, 
and social media coordination provided by me, Phoenix McCullough. Project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Have you ever wondered how whales navigate the oceans without obvious landmarks to bring them to their home waters? Oh. <laughs> that did not come out right. Oh, God. Sorry. Oh, that was terrible. Ah, apologize to me for editing that. I apologize to you categorically. Not just for editing, but just for listening to that in the first place through the headphones. <laughs> I'm sorry. Blooper time. Yeah. Oh. <laughs>